Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are pleased to have with us today award-winning historian Mark Morris. Uh, Professor Morris has taught history at the universities of London and Oxford. And he is the author of numerous books, including Castle, a history of the buildings that shaped medieval Britain, the Norman Conquest, Battle of Hastings and the Fall of Anglo-Saxon England, Kings and Castles, King John, Treachery, Tyranny, and the Road to Magna Carta, William I, England's Conqueror. And today we will be discussing Mr. Morris's richly researched, very readable, and highly recommended book, A Great and Terrible King, Edward I, and the Forging of Britain. I purchased this very easily on Amazon, and anyone can go on to Amazon and highly recommend purchasing um, this wonderful book. Uh, so we'll get right to it. Um, just a little bit, perhaps, about your background and how you became interested in Edward I. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I studied history at university, obviously, and um, I became very interested very quickly in the medieval period. Um, at school, I had done the normal English school child's diet of a lot of Tudors, um, a lot of 20th century history. I had done, obviously, the, the, the Tudors come out of the medieval period, so there were always references to things like Parliament and Acts of Impeachment and Acts of Attainder. And I can remember visiting a castle in the Midlands called Kenilworth Castle on a, on a school trip when I was about 17 or 18. And um, just the information at that castle, you know, the, the origins of the castle were earlier centuries. They were 12th, 13th centuries. There was a uh, the great siege there in the 13th century, which is actually in the Edward I book. And I can remember just thinking, this is a period I know nothing about. And as soon as I got to university, um, the, uh, the lectures were posted. I didn't realise that I would have the ability to opt for different periods. And it was effectively uh, professors doing a sales pitch for the all-round wonderfulness of their particular patch of the garden they cultivated. And I just looked at the lecture list for English medieval history, and it was Im immediately hooked. The lectures were things like the Norman Conquest, uh, Anarchy of Stephen's Reign, um, uh, King John and Magna Carta, Henry III, and, and basically <laughs> you could say that each of those lectures kind of is the one I've written a book about, you know, 20 years on. Um, but I was, you know, although I did other things in my time as an undergraduate, I always kind of ended up taking optional courses on the medieval period. I did a master's in medieval history. I eventually did a doctorate in medieval history at Oxford, um, which specialised on uh, the 13th century earls of Norfolk. I don't know if you mentioned that in, in your review of my literature, one of my books, but that's for collectors only. Okay. Um, and... Um, that that was really my so my I've, I cut my teeth on the record evidence with 13th century stuff and because the, the record evidence is most voluminous for um, the the elite in society the aristocracy um, I did the Earls of Norfolk who haven't been done before and out of that um, grew the book on Edward the First. So let, let's set the scene a little bit 13th century. What are we looking at? England, Europe, what does it all look like for, you know, the map, the countries, the players? 
Century. Well, a very broad question. Okay. Um, I suppose in terms of England, um, England is basically the same size and shape as it is now. England solidifies as a kingdom uh, in the 10th century. So it's kind of precociously early. And um, although its, it's northern border with Scotland is debated for a couple of hundred years and its, it's border with Wales, such as it is a border, more of a kind of permeable frontier, frontier, they're broadly in the same place as they are now. Um, and um, I suppose in terms of dispelling kind of modern myths about the Middle Ages, um, you might think that people in the Middle Ages were forever fighting and it was in a perpetual state of anarchy. But by and large, especially in 13th century England, it's very peaceful. I mean, there are occasions when people break down and people reach for their swords, as indeed, you know, in, in the modern era when politics breaks down and, and people go to war. But um, by and large, it's very peaceful, very proper prosperous its population is rising which is a great motor of um of uh of a, of a sort of a um economic growth um and um i i can't think of much else to add perhaps we'll perhaps we'll um you know drill down into specifics as we go ah, on but okay and, and europe and europe and europe at this at this point well, you now you're pushing me outside of my comfort zone. Okay, um, okay. Europe, um, Europe I mean, if, if we compare it with its nearest neighbour, the Kingdom of France, the Kingdom of France is also increasingly stable. If you've gone back 100 years earlier and said, what's the Kingdom of France like in, say, the late 11th and 12th centuries? The answer would have been it's a patchwork of um, counties and dukedoms um, with the King of France existing, uh, ex exerting rather, really only nominal control. But what happens from the start of the 13th century, the turn of the 12th and 13th centuries, is the power of the King of France grows very rapidly. Um, a great turning point in, in the early 13th century is the King of France, Philip Augustus, conquering Normandy, which of course had been linked to England ever since the Norman Conquest, with a few brief interruptions. So um, if in the, in the 12th century, um, all of Western France, Normandy, uh, Anjou, Brittany, um, Poitou and Aquitaine, all the way from the Channel, all the way down to the Pyrenees. All of that western half of France is ruled by the King of England, uh, Henry II, and his sons, Richard I and King John. But King John, as you mentioned, I also wrote a book about King John. King John, um, because of his own ineptitude, really, loses the vast part of that continental inheritance. Um, and he loses it to the person he loses it to, or most of it to, is the King of France, Philip Augustus. So France is expanding, uh, or the, the crown, the French crown is expanding into the area we think of now as France here in the early 13th century. So to that extent, um, you've got um, a, a growth in kind of national identity in both these kingdoms. Um, so people in um, various parts of France attending to think of themselves as French and people who ancestry in, in, in England have maybe come over with the normal uh, the, with the conquest of 1066 might a century of earlier have considered themselves to have uh, so let's say um, um, divided loyalties or, or split identities you know they might be Norman when they're in Normandy and English when they're in England they're now increasingly thinking of themselves as just English one thing that happens for example with King John is um, he starts in the tradition of his ancestors, the start of his reign, describing uh, in his letters, he sends out dozens of every day in his writs to his um, um, officials. He describes letters to 
uh, they're addressed to all his subjects, French and English, Angliette Frankie or Frankie at Angli. After 1204, he drops the Frankie. So he just, he's just writing to all his English subjects. So as I say, there's, there's, there's you know, something that we can work with there, perhaps. Okay. Um, so obviously, um, Edward I, who you point out, really should perhaps be called Edward III. Um, his father is king, King Henry. Um, so he becomes king. But, but what were his particular strengths that propelled him um, to that leadership role as a king? Gosh, something I should I should have prefaced this by saying it's very kind of you to tout the book. But the book came out in 2008 and I finished it in 2007. So I'm having to really kind of mine my memory here. Let's let's start with the most obvious. Edward is portrayed in uh, the, the Mel Gibson film, 1995 Mel Gibson film Braveheart. And he's called by, I think, both his um, uh, allies and his enemies, Longshanks. Um, now, that's one of the few accurate bits in that. Uh, that film. Um, Longshanks was a name with contemporary Warren. So, so a couple of late 13th century English chroniclers called him Edward with the Longshanks or Edward the Long because he was very tall. Um, Edward was buried in Westminster Abbey when he died in 1307 and when they cracked open his tomb in the late 18th century and measured him, his, his corpse which was kind of richly dressed and uh, um, wearing a, an imitation crown, um, when they measured him he was six foot two after four and a half centuries of trinkets. So he was jolly tall. And we know um, from sort of a, the, the money that was spent on him in official accounts as a child, um, he was, um, uh, as all aristocrats were really, he was encouraged to, to hunting and sort of outdoor pursuits from a young age. Um, the great contrast with, with, with Edward is his father, who you mentioned, Henry III, who was almost the opposite of what a successful king ought to be or was was thought necessary for a successful king so henry was not particularly martial although when roused he would lead armies he himself um shunned away from things normal aristocratic pursuits like hunting and tournaments um which which made him very odd uh, i think amongst um uh english kings and also amongst the sort of english warrior elite um edward by contrast i think probably in, in um almost in, in spite of his father's preferences, as teenagers do, tend to sort of say, well, I want to go to tournaments. So you can see him tourneying and throwing himself into tournaments from his mid-teens. Um, and he becomes very good at it. And one of the things that uh, I think is very significant about Edward and his reputation as a, as a, uh, um, a martial figure is it's not just flatterers saying, oh, he was very good at war, because you can always find chroniclers that flatter medieval monarchs. You can always find the propagandists. As an example, um, you mentioned William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror, his contemporary biographer, William of Poitiers, says, um, you know, when he, when he sort of was first armed as a knight, you know, all of Frankia trembled at his coming. You know, this is a 15-year-old kid. Whereas in the case of Edward I, um, we have testimony by his enemies that he was very strong in battle. So there is a famous poem written about one of Edward's early encounters, the Battle of Lewis, when he's in his mid-twenties, the so-called Song of Lewis. And it says, how should we describe him? Um, and it says in the first instance, we have seen in the recent battle how he was 
um, you know, uh, 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 he describes him as a lion in his fierceness, throwing himself into the thick of the action, fearing the onslaught of none. And there are later references to Edward doing the same thing. So he's undoubtedly someone who was um, very accomplished as a warrior. And that counts for a lot in a, in a, in a society where the elite are warriors. Um, uh, skipping ahead a bit, he goes on crusade in his mid-twenties, which was seen at the time as being the most noble thing you could do as a Christian warrior prince. He's one of only two English kings who makes it as far as the Holy Land, whilst king. The other example being his great uncle, Richard the Lionheart. Well, let's, so, talk, let's talk a little bit about his, his, his role. In, this is the Ninth Crusade. Uh, I don't, I don't do numbering, but yes, if you like, I think it's the eighth or the ninth crusade. But eighth I think we stop. Ca- I stop counting after the fourth. But it's the so one just, just, just a, in- a little, a little background on the crusades and and how English English were involved in those and his particular role in the eighth, ninth crusade, whatever it was. Um, well, the background to crusading, I mean, if we're starting at the ground floor, the background is the first crusade, crusade is launched, is it 1095, 1096? And by the time it gets to um, the Holy Land, it's 1099. Um, and that crusade is famously, from a Christian point of view, very successful in that they, uh, they, they seize Jerusalem and they establish a series of new polities to defend the Holy Land. So you get these new the kingdom of Jerusalem itself and various other counties um, being established along that um, eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. Um, and subsequent crusades um, in the 12th century don't go so well when the crusader states, you know, once once you've seized it, then obviously you have to defend it. And by the late uh, 12th century, um, the crusader states are under threat from um, Islamic forces. Um, and the crucial thing uh, for, for, I think, for the Western mind is the loss of Jerusalem, uh, which, if, if a memory serves, is 1187 um, when it falls to Saladin. And that sent shockwaves and, and enormous guilt throughout the West, since that their forefathers, you know, their grandfather, their great grandfather, had, had won back the Holy City. And, but now, the, on their watch, it has been lost. So for the 13th century, there's this constant constant kind of guilt about we have to try and get Jerusalem back. Famously, the first um, Western prince to act on that impetus is the person I've already mentioned, Richard the Lionheart, who, who by, he's crowned king in, in England in 1189. And within two years, he's in the Holy Land, you know, um, winning victories, although he doesn't actually retake Jerusalem. He shores up um, the, the, the kingdom of, 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 of Jerusalem. Um, and um, I think a large part of, in, term, in Edward's terms, um, in, in terms of his family history, he is looking back at his great uncle Richard thinking, well, this is unfinished business. This is something that, that it behooves me to do. And that's the thing, again, true of the entire um, aristocratic class of both England and Francia, uh, France in the 13th century, is that they see this as their... Um, their, their duty and their destiny. Um, and it's also, it's not, I've been talking exclusively about men and male warrior roots, but it's also become a, a female um, um, uh, concern by the 13th century. One of the things that's striking and, and I think surprises people when I talk about this to, to sort of public audiences is the fact that they took their wives with them. So when Edward goes on crusade in 1070, off with him goes Eleanor of Castile, his wife, and lots of his um, 
his, his brother takes his wife and lots of their dependents they go with their, their wives with them but not, that, not that this requires any um particular proof to substantiate this point but um uh, the the story in edward's case the, the the sort of story that becomes the legend is that he is uh there's an attempt on his life um two years into his crusade by uh an assassin literally an assassin um who manages to stab uh, the future king and it's Eleanor of Castile, his wife, who is on the scene, who is in legend supposed to have sucked the poison from the wound. So crusading is a family affair. Okay. Uh, the, the original crusades um, decimated Jewish communities as they made their way across Europe. Was any of this happening during Edward's crusade? Not to my knowledge. So you're right in the case of, I mean, bearing in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm now sort of stretching even further as a, as, a, as a historian, not particularly of the Crusades. But that certainly happens with the First Crusade. And it happens in England, I know, with the Third Crusade. So in the First Crusade, I mean, the, 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 the logic of it, if you like, by, by the standards of 11th century mentalities, is if you whip up um, murderous hate against... Uh, infidels and unbelievers to, to motivate them to travel 1500 miles from the place that they live to go and fight in a place of which they know nothing if you're going to whip that kind of hatred up into people then what happens of course is you're playing with kind of gunpowder and people turned around and look at the unbelievers the non-christians who live in their own midst who in vast majority of cases because um jews in 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 uh certainly in Western Europe, they are, um, they are not constrained by the Christian ban on money lending because many of them lend money at interest. It's like kind of, you know, whipping up fury against bankers or something in the, in the modern era. You know, it's just, yes, any outlet for the outrage that's been stoked in me, I can take it out on these minorities. So that's what happens in the First Crusade. It happens again at the start of the, the, the reign of Richard the Lionheart, when there are pogroms in England against Jewish communities. In terms of the 13th century, I can think of incidents like that that are happening in the 10th, 50s and 1060s in the Civil War in England, when Jewish communities are targeted. I cannot remember any specific ones directly related to Edward's crusade at the time the crusade was happening or as a result of it being launched. It's, it comes as a package, obviously. If you start, um, you know, whipping up further, further against and hatred against infidels, then um, non-believers who live in your own midst are inevitably going to suffer. So, so we're, 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 it's the great and the terrible. Yeah. So he's great, yet he's, he's, he's terrible. So what makes him great? What makes him terrible? What were his, his main accomplishments when he became? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to pause there because you're setting up great and terrible as, as sort of opposites, I think. And there is that nice tension in the title. And of course, you'll know great and terrible is a phrase that is not, I, I didn't coin it. I used it because it's used in other contexts. It's, you know, Sinai is the great and terrible wilderness. Uh, Oz is the great and terrible wizard, you know. Um, I think it's used in Tolkien as well. You'll have a power too great and terrible. So, but I, I mean, the reason I use those terms particularly is because I was looking for some way of conveying the contradictions about Edward's career and, and the man himself. 
And I was combing through contemporary obituaries of him. There's a very long obituary written by, uh, of him by the, an analyst based in Westminster, which, as you can imagine, because that's where Edward and his father and his family are buried, that, um, you know, that pours praise on him for the most part. And he's described as great in that. Um, but great is also a term which, you know, you can use it in the, in, in, I think, especially in modern English, or you can point out that, it doesn't, um, it, although we often use it to mean, you know, this is, this is a, a great restaurant I'm taking you to. Um, Magnus, the Latin word they use, just means it's kind of, kind of, you know, huge in terms of its impact. It's great as in large, like Magna Carta, um, uh, the Great Charter. I mean, you might think it's inherently great or not, but it's just the size of it and the impact. And interestingly, with Edward I, great is a word that is, again, used by his detractors or at least people on the opposite side of the cultural chasm. So um, one of the things that we'll probably talk about is Edward's wars against the people, other peoples of the British Isles, so the Welsh, the Scots, and to a lesser extent, the Irish. And it's an Irish chronicler who, in an obituary of when Edward dies in 1307, who describes him as Edward, Edwardus Magnus. And it then, it's only a brief obituary, but it says something like, in his time, the most men fell. So it's not a good thing necessarily but it's it's describing the sheer magnitude of his impact uh terrible um i don't i'm not kind of you know trying to rehabilitate the word terrible but terrible doesn't necessarily mean the bland thing it means today as uh you know this is this this is a, a terrible carpet you've put down um terrible um is in the sense of terrifying and again that was a word that was used by his westminster obituarist uh, he's, it says to the sons of pride, meaning anyone who crossed him, the Welsh, the Scots, the Irish, you know, to the sons of pride, he was indeed a rex terribilis, terrible king. So I just like the tension between those those two words. Um, but also, I think it's a way of acknowledging that whilst Edward did many things that struck his English contemporaries as praiseworthy, um, the people he was doing them too often thought of him as, you know, a, a sort of Darth Vader figure, a terrible figure who was just terrorizing their community. So it's a it's an acknowledgement of um, both his impact and and the uh, detrimental effect it had for many people that came into contact. And so, and so uh, his his main accomplishments as we at history, I, I think. Um, I'm thinking in terms of, um, again, I, I, I'm trying to avoid thinking myself back into sort of as a, from a 13th century perspective all the time. In the 13th century, the thing that counted for most was the previous reign, so Henry III's reign, since at least the late 1240s had been unstable and had collapsed into um, civil war, uh, a very destruct destructive and embittered civil war. And Edward's great accomplishment from the point of view of his English subjects was he brought them peace. So from the start of his reign, right the way through the first 25 years, there is nothing in the way of civil unrest. Um, and in, in indeed in Edward's reign, although there is, um, uh, you know, it comes close to rebellion in the, in the um, mid to late 1290s, it never spills over into rebellion. So he's, he's regarded as a masterful king who kept his great subjects in check, um, who, enabled peace to flourish um and who legislated a lot i mean that's the, the thing he was he was um touted from at least the 
early 17th century as a great legislator. When, when um, historians came to look at the, the, the um, statute book, they saw all these huge statutes that sort of beginning in Edward's reign from, from, his, uh, from sort of 1275 onwards. So he was called uh, by one English jurist, uh, the English Justinian after the sixth century Roman emperor who codified Roman law, you know. So he's, um, he's, he's seen as a great legislator. Um, but I wouldn't want to push his, his accomplishments too far because this is where we get into this question of what makes someone great and what makes someone terrible. From a 13th century point of view, he fulfilled all the contemporary expectations of a Christian warrior prince. So he was anti-Semitic. He warred down his enemies to destruction. All of these things for which we would condemn him, contemporary English, his contemporary subjects applauded. 